Hello and welcome to the first episode of Prestige, a podcast about films and filmmaking. In each programme we'll be focusing on a particular movie and a theme that's loosely based on this, and the idea is to use one film as a jumping off point to talk about bigger ideas about the film. And then after that we're going to get into some reviewing and some discussions around the arguments, kind of generally ending up in an argument as we're kind of old pros arguing over films. And we'll finish off with some bits and bobs of recommendations, some ideas, some further viewing, that kind of thing. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The idea is to make it to the end of this podcast first. So, yeah, first things first, who are we? I'm Rob Maythorne. I spent the last 15 years uh, working in the film industry as a film colourist. I've worked on films uh, big and small across all genres and all kind of sizes of budget. Recent ones are things like Gravity or uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Um, my name's Sam, and I'm a writer and teacher. Um, I write about books and graphic novels, comic books, in journals, essay collections, and an eye-wateringly expensive monograph. It's 55 quid if you've got money to burn, just go to the library if you haven't. Um, and I teach English in an FE college in Leeds. Um, I like films, I don't know an awful lot about them, so that's over to him for that. Oh, and I've known Rob for about... 21 years, so um, I'm not sure why that's relevant. Pity. Tw- 21 years, man, that's been yeah. a long time. Far too long. So, this week we're going to be looking at a recent big release, Avengers 2 Age of Ultron, and uh, looking at sort of tentatively what we call the art of the sequel. So, Sam, thoughts? So, first things first, I don't think I found a sequel that much more enjoyable than the original since I first saw Empire. I thought it was brilliant. A friend I went to see it with suggested that there'd been a production meeting after the first film where they'd seen how successful Robert Downey Jr.'s camp one-liners were and decided that everyone needed to do them. And I thought it was all the better for that. And the characters settled into it, apart from Chris Hemsworth, who, yeah. And it seemed to be much closer to Guardians in terms of knowingness and self-awareness. Speaking of Guardians of the Galaxy, I liked the nod to Chris Pratt and the headphones and backing track in the character's head and then the music stays. There's a fancy word for it, but I forget. (laughs) And I thought the links to a basis in Christian culture were well done. Um, I'm taking all the beats from the first five minutes of the film to avoid spoilers. But Jarvis's sacrificial son at the start and the tongue-in-cheek Jarvis is my co-pilot bumper sticker. Mm. and the idea of spirit becoming flesh and one versus many and all that. And I found the Romanov-Banner relationship genuinely moving. Really? Um, yeah, I thought it was really good. But on that one, I would disagree. That one felt incredibly forced to me. Oh, right. I would agree with you. I think that I think that the film is fun with a capital F. I think that I, I saw it with uh, my wife and two friends, two friends who'd never seen any Marvel films before, hadn't seen right. Avengers 1. <laughs> um, and came with the Sea Avengers 2 and they had a blast and I do genuinely think it is, it is fun as, as Sam says they seem to have settled into their characters and their roles within the show a little bit a lot of the characters in it are only team players like Hulk Hawkeye Black Widow these characters don't have their own stories if you see what I'm saying mm. and those particularly they've kind of got their role down I do think I would disagree on the romance. I felt that one felt a bit too out of the blue. I kind of got the justification from it, um, but I didn't kind of I didn't see it coming. It felt kind of a bit forced. I would say that I have some issues with it. Go for it. I think that anyone who's watched a lot of Josh Whedon's stuff 
can see all the story beats coming. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I I love Whedon. I, I, will, I will worship at the altar of Whedon until the day I die. But see, that's really surprising. You don't strike me as that sort of person. Really? No, no. But I do think that you can see a lot of his beats. He, he has gone on record as saying that he knows he, he has a story arc he uses, and you know he knows this page in the script this is going to happen. That this page this can happen, but. You you know that certain things in the story are coming. You don't know how they're going to play out, I grant you. And knowing who does what is going to be the different kind of uh, the thing to work out. Mm. Um, but I do think that at a certain point, I'm looking forward to someone else taking the reins of, of, of the Avengers. Someone else having a crack at that story arc. Which is going to happen with uh, number three. The Russo brothers are taking over. This is, his la- this is Whedon's last... Marvel film, I believe. Right, and I think that I, I, I would I would kind of echo Sam. There's, there's a lot of themes exposed in the film, and one that really struck me was the whole kind of man versus god idea. Almost the, the, the mad scientists on one hand, who don't think they're mad but know they're mad, um, and then you've got the more kind of naturalistic, we'll stick together, follow the follow the path, even outside of Captain America. If you get what I'm saying, Sam. Mm, yeah. And I think given that the third film is Avengers Civil War, and if anyone's read, read the Civil War comics, basically... Have you read them, Sam? No, I've, I've... Well, that was something else I wanted to mention. I purposely avoided reading any of the comics because I quite fancy just going along with the ride and not knowing about like the backstory and Thanos and any of the relationships between the Avengers. I've read a bit in the late... 90s, early 2000s, there was something called the Ultimate World, where basically Marvel rebooted all their storylines. So a whole new world, so new X-Men, new Avengers. And they had something called the Ultimates, which was their version of Avengers. And I read that, and having read X-Men over the years, I've read a little bit of Avengers, but not a lot. The only one I have read is Civil War. And Civil War basically is a Civil War between superheroes. Yeah. Now, I won't go into details, because I don't want to get spoilers away for the comics and films, but the reasons why the Civil War breaks out in the comics simply can't happen in the film. They haven't set it up in a way that it means it can happen. Oh, right. It's, kind of, it's, it's all related to uh, secret identities. And they did be able to reveal them. But in the, well, in, in, in the movies, no one has secret identity. Mm. But they have, they have set up this idea of warring factions with, as you said, with, like, with Banner and Stark against Captain America and, and Hulk. Yeah, and I think whilst you've got someone like Thor who kind of straddles magic science line really because obviously he's very much the embodiment of any sufficiently advanced technology appears like magic because mm. yeah. in the Thor films they do say they are it isn't magic it's just science beyond what we know but obviously it does seem like and especially with this film when you get into the world of spirit quests and all that kind of more non-Christian religion based stuff mm. despite being based on North religion I think there's a there's a sort of science versus God conflict Brewing. Yeah. I like as well, I'm aware that I've just said that Banner's on one side and the Hulk is on the other, but I actually I'll stand by that because I like the way that there's this conflict, this science science creator conflict within one character. And you have like after the Hulk has done terrible things, he'll he'll hang his head. Well Banner will hang his head about what's happened. I agree entirely. I think that there's there's some amazing nuances in the characters, and I feel that's where, as a sequel, it's really stepped up the game. Mm. In that, particularly with that, the Hulk is a great example. You make it, if you know his the duality of his character of who he is as the Hulk, and who he is as Banner, and Banner's relationship to the Hulk, and that he knows they need him. They have a code green 
for the Hulk, and he's like, well, do you need me? Do you not need me? And then he has, like, regret. Even in the very first opening scene, when he's the Hulk, but he's made himself the Hulk, and he's fighting for the good, and all that kind of... In, in the first film, especially, where he chooses and, and can, can be the Hulk he can control. Yeah. There's still a lot of regret around what he does, and there's still kind of a an idea of that he doesn't want to be there, in mm. the way that I think almost all the other characters want to be there. I think that Black Widow has a little bit of what if, what could have been if she hadn't been sent to... Yeah. But all the other characters are very much like, well, this is my job, this is what I do, well, I've all, made this choice. Him in particular, I mean, mm. he has whole conversations about, I've got to do this, this is my job, I'm, I, I want to do this, I want to be committed to this. I think I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that in the sequel they kind of gave a lot more screen time to Hawkeye. Because mm. in the first one, I always thought he was played short, as well in the Avengers, let's say, that he was played short because of being mind-controlled in the first film. He didn't really have a lot to do. I wonder whether that was very much a conscious decision of, you know what, Hawkeye in the comics is very popular, very, very popular. Right. And they're kind of, actually, people really like him. The whole kind of internet fandom around Hawkeye is quite large. And I wonder sometimes whether it was more of a commercial decision to go, you know what, let's give him a lot more screen time. People like him. Yeah. It it helps that Jeremy Renner is naturally likeable anyway. I agree. I think that there's something to be said overall for generally the spot-on casting of, of these films. Mm. I, I, I'm trying to think through the film now, and I can't really think of a weak link. And actually, I mentioned well, the one acting I don't like is Chris Hemsworth, but one one of the friends I went to see with said, well, that's part of the joy of the character, that he is a bit stilted and rubbish. Yeah, he's he's meant to you know, puny mortals kind of yeah. you know that there is meant to be a, a kind of a thing around that he particularly seen the, the first Thor film uh, that he is this big dumb warrior mm, who isn't, yeah. isn't designed for politics isn't designed for uh, intrigue he's he hits things and drinks and the first film admittedly was about him kind of coming beyond that and becoming worthy enough to lift the hammer and I think we, everyone's seen the little trailer came out about them all lifting the hammer around the table and that was a great little scene and I think that I, I, I can see what your friend's saying there, that there's part of the characterization could be that he isn't very good at this kind of not hitting things with a hammer. Yeah. I, I do think that there is a, I know, a general trend among Marvel films of that everything can be solved by hitting things hard. Um, one, of, one of the things I didn't like about this, and I think it's more a general gripe with, like you said, like you said with with Marvel in general, not necessarily just this film, is the idea that it's inherently exciting to have two big, awesome superheroes fight each other. When I just find that a bit dull. Um, I like the clever parts of fight scenes. So Captain America and Thor in tandem, and Widow on a bike, and like any time Hawkeye uses a bow is good fun. But if you've got two similarly awesome physical opponents, then I just find that a bit dull. I, I'd, I'd agree. I, I think that's where, as a sequel, I think they've stuck to the game a lot from the first one, that there yeah. is a lot of interplay between their fighting styles. And you get the vibe that they've been playing together a lot, that they've, uh, they've been fighting together a lot, and that they've kind of learned these little tricks. Mm. But I think it, that's, I suppose, a more a, a, a meditation on the nature of modern films, in that all of them just hit things hard. And yeah. every every battle they fight is about them physically fighting somebody. And all the new characters who turn up 
um, even the ones that are sort of maybe more, I don't know, enlightened or whatever, still basically just hit things hard. Yeah. Um, and I would love to see a bit more, occasionally some of the uh, the idea of more of a smarter solution. Yeah, I just I just want less Michael Bay. Yes. It's, it, there were times in this, the very short times when I thought I could just be watching Transformers 4. Yes, and I, I think that there's a... There's always a a risk when you get into especially CGI battles that you're going to go the Transformers way. I mean, to sort of kick it a bit larger, if you look at something like Pacific Rim, mm-hmm. um, which I really really liked, and I think that I know people people didn't like it, but I think their fight scenes were very well done because it is giant robots fighting giant monsters, but at all times there was a kind of continuation of action, and you knew what was happening. Mm. You could kind of you got what was happening, whereas something like Transformers, it's just it's just a, a mass of swirling cuts. You've got no idea what's going on. Yeah. And sometimes, especially when you're looking at Ultron fighting Iron Man, where they're both completely CGI, that you kind of you lost sense of where the ground was and who what be was, and it was all so fast. You're like, well, I don't really, don't really follow it. Yeah. But to, 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 to kick this in a little bit larger, um, we wanted to look at sort of I suppose the art of the sequel. Both of us kind of are on board with this being a very good sequel, but in a w- larger world, kind of, what do you think makes a good sequel? I think that knowingness is a good thing, and also well, the thing with the Avengers is what makes it a good sequel is what makes it a, a bit annoying as a sequel, which is the idea of narrative and the the fact that it, it links so well with the others is good, but at the same time. You just think, I mean, I was talking to someone about this last night, that you know in advance where the narrative's going to go, and mm. you know that the next 40 million Avengers films have been lined up for one every three years from now until the end of time. So it's just a bit... Mm. Yeah, I think that a general concern I find with sequels is that you kind of want to have to that fine line between sort of in the same wheelhouse as the first film, so you mm. lose your audience... And doing something so similar that no one cares. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we, we have mentioned it earlier in briefing, but Star Wars, the original trilogy, did this very well. You look at something like Star Wars versus Empire. Empire is very clearly a sequel. Um, there's still the same sort of beats happening, same sort of story arc happening, but it feels like a very different sort of film. Yeah. And I think there's a whole other argument around trilogies versus sequels. In the sense, plans a trilogy, it has different points to hit over it all. But I do think that there's a, there's a very fine line to be tread there, and I think certain sequels certainly kind of cross that line one way or the other. Because one, actually, the the last one I saw before this was another sequel, was 22 Jump Street. Yes. And I think that's an interesting comparison to draw there. It's not, it wasn't a, a good film by any stretch of the imagination, but the idea of there was a is a very marked difference in in how a sequel is instructed with that because it was obvious that they'd seen oh the first one's been a success how can we do the second one mm. like how can we take this further but an interesting thing was the the credits at the end of that specifically undermined the idea of of creating a sequel in the first place yeah i, th- I think i think twenty two jump street is a very interesting example because Whilst I agree that I don't think it was a, a, an amazing film, I do think it handled its sequelness very well mm. by basically going, you know, make it very clear that this is a sequel. And there's a lot of there's a lot of, there's a lot of knowing jokes about the fact that this is a cash in on that first film. Yes. 
that yeah. you know they're now they've moved across the roads so they've got to live at 22 Jump Street and all that sort of thing and I think there's some interesting ideas in that film of how comedy can do sequels so I think that's the one genre particularly that struggles with sequels yes I, I, I've been racking my brain to try and think of a shall we say a good comedy sequel and it's it's a lot harder than you think because a lot of sequels kind of unintentionally fall into parody of the first film. Yeah. One brilliant example of that is my... I'm going to get on my soapbox about about the Saw films because the original one was absolutely brilliant and really tightly plotted and you didn't know what was coming and the characters well-drawn. That was brilliant. And the torture was there to serve a purpose. Yes. And it was horrible and he was a psychopath but you could you could understand it. Then then you you can see the the studio execs thinking, Oh, we've had money from that, let's make more. Instantly, Saw Two, Three, Four, Five, Six, Seven, they're all awful. Yes. It, it, and it's it's what gets lost is this idea of of having a narrative. Because suddenly they think, Oh, just just these these torturous traps are what make us money, so we're going to build a film around these. And I think that's that's kind of the crux of what could end up with a bad sequel, is misunderstanding what made the first exactly. one good. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think Saw is a great example of that. Is that the people think, well, I saw the first Saw film when I was at university, me and my girlfriends and friends, we watched it, we saw it, and we were utterly terrified. Yeah. Like, it messes you up. And then you watch the other ones, and you're just like... This is just just special effects showing off, and yeah, there's an impressiveness to the way they've made up these traps, but it's not interesting. No, it's, it's not uh, you know, it's not a uh, fun. And I think that a great example of this also is Ocean's Eleven, Twelve, and Thirteen. Yes, exactly. And I, I enjoy the Ocean's films because I love a heist kind of movie. But the first one is great, but you can tell with the second and third one they're very much like well, everybody loves the interplay of the characters. Everyone loves yeah. the cool. And I don't think that was what people loved. People loved the plotting of it, the kind of the reveals. And yeah, the, the cast helped, but almost all the characters just became, I think it's called the flanderization of a character. Um, have you heard that term? Yeah, the idea that if you look at someone like um, Flanders on Simpsons, yeah. that over the life of that character, he has become his catchphrases. Right, yeah. He, he started as a character and ended up as a trope. Yeah. And... The idea that some characters over time become that, I think, especially in Oceans 12 and 13, some of the characters became Flanderized, especially someone, I'm trying to think of, uh, Brad Pitt. Yeah. Brad Pitt's character went from being kind of a smooth, cool, good-looking one to this somehow womanising, king-of-everything kind of guy. Yeah, and he wasn't that in the first one at all. He was eating all the time. That was his thing. Yes. Like, every shot he was just eating something. And there was no, there was no sense that he was some sort of Lothario that you get in the later ones. No, and and I think Bernie Mac, who who plays uh, Frank Catton, mm. in the first one he's kind of like a, a dealer, and by the sort of second and third one he becomes this weird kind of guy who loves gloves and hands. It's like you just kind of you lose any kind of character, um, yeah. and they just become tropes. And I think that's where comedy can suffer because a lot of comedy characters start off as tropes, yeah. they start off as as uh, sort of stock characters, and become more more so, and you lose it down the line certainly. You're, you did some crowdsourcing about um, sequels, what people thought about sequels. Yes. So, a very informal poll on Facebook um, yeah. of the best and worst uh, sequels. And 
a lot of things came up. A lot of things came up. Empire struck out came up a lot. Godfather Two came up an awful lot as good sequels. The Batman films came up. Dark Knight and that sort of stuff. I disagree entirely with that because I think they're terrible films. Yeah, you're a philistine. You should. I, but that, that, that's a, that's, that's a, 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 a podcast when they release Spider Man vs Batman. Okay, right. Um, one that I think came up that I would agree with. I, I hadn't thought about it until so was Bad Boys Two. Now I have never seen that. So... Have you seen Bad Boys One or Bad Boys Two? I think I've seen Bad Boys One, but I may or may not have been drunk. Uh, Bad Boys 1 and Bad Boys 2 are very different films. Right. Bad, Boys, Bad Boys 1 is kind of, it's action, but it's very much a thriller. It's, you know, they're, they're kind of just trying to solve this murder, there's gangsters, and Bad Boys 2 is very much an almost over-top parody. There's action scenes, there's driving a, a car through a building. It's a full-on action film compared to the first one, which is a thriller film. And I think that's one where they, they nailed down why people liked it. And that is Will Smith. Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, who obviously the main mm. character in it, their interplay and that kind of sparkiness is why people love that first one, and they maintain that in the second one. And yeah, they threw more guns and more explosions and that stuff, but I think the reason why it works is they've, they've, they've hung on to that kind of the, the, the core that made it everyone loving it in the first place. And uh, it's, it's like you said, it's just keeping hold of this idea that people loved it for a reason. Yeah. It's not sell out. And I think also there's a, there's a there's a general theme on, on my counterpoint of a second film being better than the first film when you're talking mm-hmm. about a existing franchise. So Superman, Batman, Star Trek, the idea that somehow that with, with these things that maybe always start off as a book or a comic and then make them into a films, it takes a second film to hit their stride. X-Men 2 is a great example. I, I, I think, cover your ears, but I think the Batman films did this I thought The Dark Knight was the best of the three by a long way and I thought it took a while to get into its stride and Nolan really hit the jackpot with the second one but you don't agree because you're wrong so no. I, I I would certainly agree the second one is the best of the three mm. um, but I think that they they serve Batman as a character very badly and I think that and this is a whole other podcast I think that the Batman the strength of Batman is that he is the world's greatest detective. That he has plans and then plans and then plans. Yeah. And that is how the idea of a Batman vs Superman film is interesting, because you think, well, you've got the guy who is incredibly fast, incredibly strong, versus the smartest man in the world. And yeah. that's the conflict. Whereas the Nolan films didn't deliver any point that detectiveness. Which is why when you talk about the Superman vs Batman film coming out, everyone's just like, well, Superman would win. Because no, no, they've never established the idea that he is a comparable peer, different skill set, but a peer to Superman. Yeah. And that's where I have my issue. But I would agree. I would agree that I think that the second one is them. And I think that's, that may be a thing when it comes to sort of, sort of translations from, from different media. Mm-hmm. That maybe if from, as I said, if you see the original X-Men films, X-Men 1 and 2, X-Men 1 very much feels like it's busy building a franchise. Spider-Man is the same, but the first, first Spider-Man films with Tobey Maguire, they're so busy building a franchise that it isn't a great film. No. Come the second film, when they haven't got to do all the lead-up, all the origin stories, all that sort of stuff, they can just make a good film. So I think there's a freeingness that comes with a sequel that sometimes you don't get in the first film. The other one that came up an awful lot, and I, I'm sad to say I haven't seen this, Son of the Mask. Now, I didn't even know this existed, and I've never, I've never seen it, but apparently it came up more than once as being a terrible, terrible film. 
Mark Two, son of the Mark. Oh, Mark Two, right? Yes. No, I haven't seen that either. One contentious one was Blues Brothers 2000. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that as terrible. Blues Brothers is my favourite film of all time, so it kind of gets a pass by being related. <laughs> but it's terrible. But it has like two or three really good songs in it. You know, it's got it's got a blues traveller in it. It's got some good stuff. I, I the problem is, I think this is often a a problem with sequels is that when the first one's so good and yeah. so beloved, a sequel, especially a delayed sequel like Blues Brothers can never live up to it. I think this is the problem I have with the Star Wars films, the the prequel they released, which I would agree are terrible films, but there was just so much hype around them yeah. that there is no way those films could compare. And I think my, my worry is that Jurassic World is going to fall into that same trap come this summer. Although that does look really good. It looks really good, but the, the original Jurassic Park was great because it blew our minds with the technology. Like, see a dinosaur on that big screen was amazing. Whereas now, that that kind of level of CGI isn't impressive anymore. I suppose so. And, and also, there was a sense that you didn't have to build a franchise because there was a set of books to rely on. Yes. And now they're, they're not Crichton anymore. So what are they going to do with it? I mean, there's going to be a whole kind of uh, reading of that film based on the idea of they're making this mutant dinosaur and they and that links how to the, the the mutant film they've made that the, the idea that rather than sticking to the, the real dinosaurs and the real books they've gone and made that whole new story a whole new dinosaur yeah, that's, that's interesting i like that i think that, that, that there'll be a reading of that somewhere um in some sort of monogram yeah but when when i say interesting i mean interesting does not make you a good film no, no, I, 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 I think that there's, I think that's a, a general problem with sequels as a whole is the idea of a of the one line pitch that's interesting versus a good film. Yeah, you know, Second City Two, the girls go to Dubai. Sounds interesting, terrible film. And Does it really sound interesting? Well, it sounds like an interesting twist on the story. Okay, yeah. The idea of, of relocating, like I say, Ace Ventura Two, like take Ace Ventura, put him in jungle. That's something like an interesting pitch. Didn't look out as a film. Yeah, I I hated the original. That's probably because uh, I can't stand Jim Carrey. That's 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 that's, that's fine. You're wrong, but you're fine. <laughs> um, uh, there there is a a whole discussion I think around the idea of the relocation sequel, where they just try and do the same film in a different place. That that's a good question for people. Has that ever worked? Because you've just given two examples of it really not working at all. Yeah, I'm I'm just trying to think about wait. They do try and tell the same story in a different environment. But I'm trying to think of one off my head, my head that that kind of that did grab that, but I can't think of one. Okay, right. Well, that's some of the listeners then, some of the audience. Yeah. We, we'll kick that open as a question: Has a relocation sequel ever worked? Has a sequel? What's your favourite sequel? If you haven't joined in on Rob's poll, and I think we should end with some recommendations which you're going to give us. And I'm going to go with Mad Max Two. Right. Uh, now, Mad Max 2 is a very different film than Mad Max 1. They are very different worlds and different characters, but Mad Max 2 is the film where they built what Mad Max is. It yeah. is a stripped-down version of a story. It is perfectly played by Mel Gibson. The sort of the, the, the set design and the film design is brilliant and it's so well made, but it is a very different film to Mad Max. I would almost advocate you haven't got to watch Mad Max to get Mad Max 2. Right, and I think it is all the better for that. It kind of looked at first film, dropped all the crap that people didn't like, grabbed all the crap people did like, and made a new world out of it. I would go for. I quite like the Men in Black films, 
And I would say Men in Black 2 is not as horrible as you think it is. So if I'm I'm not recommending it as the best. Well, I I would give Empire as my favourite sequel, but that's boring because everyone's seen it. Um, So there's no no good as a recommendation. So if you if you haven't seen it, just just give Men in Black 2 a try because it's fun. That's that's my recommendation. Okay, I'm gonna twist it a little bit and I'm gonna ask you for a sequel you think that is maligned that everybody kind of dislikes and maybe you think is uh, great or everyone thinks it's great and you think it's terrible things great and I think it's terrible I really didn't like The Godfather 2 interesting and everyone says it's amazing and I just found it boring and I couldn't get through it I, I had to switch it off fair enough I'm going to go with The Matrix sequels is this a good thing or a bad thing? I think they're a lot better than everyone thinks they are. I think that they, I admit, aren't as good. The first one, the first one is a very much a pure, brilliant sort of pe- bit of filmmaking. And the second ones get a little bit lost in the mire of mythology. Mm. But I think there's some amazing sort of scenes and set pieces in those films. There's amazing characterization, some of the sort of more bit parts. And I think there's a lot to love in those films. And I think people write them off massively. Okay. Because they weren't as good as that one. Uh, I've just thought another one, which was possibly my favourite film of last year, was The Raid 2, which is amazing. The Road uh, 2? The Raid 2. Oh, that's it, The Road 2, because I've seen The Road, there wasn't a sequel to that. There's a sequel to The Road. <laughs> Can you get even more bleak? Um, no, The Raid 2, which was just astonishing. See, I haven't seen, I've seen The Raid and loved it. I haven't seen The Raid 2 yet. Oh, it's so good. Oh, and it's just... A, yeah, words fail me. You, di- you don't... You're not really sure how it could be any more violent or any more twisted than the first one and you, or any more tightly plotted than the first one. Okay, it isn't more tightly plotted than the first one. It's not better than the first one, but it's still pretty good. So, yes, I would recommend that. Awesome, awesome. Well, I think we'll end it there for, for, for this podcast. Uh, we'll be back soon with uh, another episode on another film and another topic. Uh, yeah. I've been Rob Mathon. And I've been Sam Knowles. Yeah. And uh, yes, enjoy your filmmaking, film watching, whatever you do with films. And uh, look forward to uh, chatting more on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.